people will take notice if if you know you're invested in this and you're building in circles into your your day-to-day lessons um and into the life of your classroom things will start to change and people will take note this restorative justice life is a production of amplify rj follow us on all social media platforms at amplify rj sign up for our email list and check out our website at amplifyrj.com to stay up to date on everything we have going on make sure you're subscribed to this feed on whatever platform you're listening on right now so you don't miss an episode finally we'd love it if you left us a rating and review it really helps us literally amplify this work Thanks for listening. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to This Restorative Justice Life, the podcast that explores how the philosophy, practices, and values of restorative justice apply to our everyday lives. I'm your host, David Ryan Barcega Castro Harris, all five names for the ancestors, and I'm the founder of Amplify RJ. On this podcast, I talk with RJ practitioners, circle keepers, and others doing this work about how this way of being has impacted their lives. I'm Elise, your producer, and today we are welcoming Daniel Malik to the podcast. Daniel is a restorative practices director at Georgia Conflict Center in Athens, Georgia. He has worked for over 20 years in the areas of youth development, youth violence prevention and intervention, conflict transformation, restorative justice, and school administration. He addresses all of those things and more in this podcast. But before we get into it, I'm so excited to announce that we are almost at our anniversary episode, which will occur on September 30th. In order to say thank you to our listeners like you, we would like to involve you in our anniversary episode. We want you to be our special guest on September 30th, so you can send us either a voice memo or a written email of any questions, comments, or topics that you want David and I to cover. You can send your ideas to amplifyrj at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you, and without further ado, let's get into this episode. Daniel, welcome to this restorative justice life. Thank you. Who are you? I am a uh, white, cisgendered male from this place. I'm from Georgia. Who are you? I am partner to my life partner to my wife, Alice. Who are you? Um, I am a father uh, to two uh, young men, a 16-year-old, Nico, and a 10-year-old named Oscar. Who are you? I am a brother. We've got three brothers, one of four boys and son, um, brother and a son. Mm-hmm. Who are you? I am like to believe, well, I am somebody who has committed my life to, to nonviolence for about 20 plus years now. And so I've been learning uh, that path for myself who are you um i'm a practitioner a learner a seeker of restorative justice and finally for this who are you portion who are you uh i'm uh i've 
a practitioner in Athens. I'm currently the uh, executive director at the Georgia Conflict Center in Athens, Georgia. Beautiful. Thank you so much for being here. We're going to get to all of those intersections in a moment, but it's always good to start with the check-in. So to the fullest extent that you want to answer the question, how are you? Yeah, well, I, I got to uh, exhale, I think. Um, you know, when you mentioned that earlier, it's just that's a loaded question these days. I mean, it is August 2021, and it's a complicated world we're living in. And I work in schools, uh, part of big part of my work, and and I work in schools that are working really hard on protecting each other amidst this pandemic. Uh, folks are, you know. I don't see kids struggling much with wearing masks or taking care of each other. It's mostly the adults in the community. So I, I feel conflicted, but I'm feel well, uh, thankfully healthy. My family is healthy. We have our health and, um, grateful to be able to work among people day in and day out that are working to build restorative culture and community. So. Uh, all that to say, I'm, I guess, grateful. Yeah. Uh, well, grateful for your family's health, your health as well. Um, this is a time unlike anything that we've experienced in our lifetimes. Although, you know, I was just listening to something earlier talking about how, you know, history repeats itself. Of course, like the very specifics, um, are different, but we've, we as humans have experienced very similar things. I'm curious in the last, uh, 17, 18 months, how you've managed. And I know at different times, different things have been uh, things to lean on, but how have you managed to um, maintain balance or find balance to the extent that you've been able to? Yeah. Thank you for asking that. I mean, I balance for me often comes with um, working with my hands as well and being, uh, we, we grow shiitake mushrooms on our small piece of uh, land here in Athens, and we raise bees. We have a couple of beehives and grow um, food and mostly greens because we, we, that's something that we can grow and realize that it is kind of the most nutritious thing that we can grow. So having over the last 17 years, I mean, when, 17 months, when the pandemic started, our work in schools pretty much drew to a halt immediately, right? And and we did not – we have a team of folks that work in schools in Athens, and all that stopped uh, um, for almost two months. And so a lot of my time shifted to being with my family and my, my kids and then being outside and working um, on the land. And that, that was very nourishing and, and healing – um, for me. And so I've tried to maintain that as we transitioned. Um, like a lot of people, after about two months of realizing, oh, those trainings that we had scheduled for April, we kept pushing them back and we're like, I don't think that's ever going to be able to. So we, we began to think about how to do our work, particularly our training work online. 
And we, uh, so we start, I think my first one virtual training began in, in July or June last year and then kind of just picking up. So a balance of learning new ways of doing work, like in a way that I never imagined. I never imagined I would do restorative justice virtually. Um, but also balancing that with the connection to the earth and, and really, um, recognizing and I want to be clear in this in the skin that I'm in because I think that's an important component all also thinking about how we can be part of the solution in our community my 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 partner and I how can we help folks that aren't able to get food and stuff so we plugged into mutual aid networks and other networks in in our community to make sure those most kind of marginalized and those that um weren't going to benefit from government checks and whatnot, undocumented folks, that uh, we could work together in community to, to first make sure folks' basic needs were met. So all those were things that kind of kept me going um, as we had this space of social distance and disconnection um, around us. Yeah, there's so much to that, right? Both – your work as somebody who is doing your work as like your job title is like executive director of an organization that is trying to bring justice, safety, equity to your communities. And like as a person who is actively uh, participating in that, in the skin that you're in, in the communities that you're in at the intersections of your identity, like those all mean different things. And there's still the need to uh, make sure that you can do this quote unquote sustainably for yourself. Right. And so the ways that you plug in to taking being in relationship with the earth, being in good relationship with people are all so important um, and a tricky balance for everyone. <laughs> yeah. Um, in, you know, our unique circumstances, definitely something that I am still struggling with. You've been doing this work of restorative justice, youth development service for a long time, but that's not where you um, initially started your career. Um, I'm curious, you know, what were the roots of doing this work for you? How did you get started, even if it was before you knew the word restorative justice, specifically from a background in industrial engineering? <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, so I did go to – I went to Georgia Tech in, in Atlanta, and I started out after that as a working in a management consulting firm and was doing that work for a few years. And – started to pay attention to this, the insides of myself felt like they were shriveling up in some ways and was having a real kind of at, you know, 23, maybe 22, 23, having kind of a crisis of, of conscience and, and really began a, a spiritual transformation at that point um, and started, you know, as I was traveling to different cities I was traveling a lot. What stuck out to me was the folks living on the streets, the folks on the margins, and started paying attention to that more. And and my own spiritual transformation took more and more root. And um, I ended up joining an organization called Jesuit Volunteers International and moved to Managua, Nicaragua, after being a consultant for about three years, moved down there and um, 
began to work with drug-addicted youth uh, and youth in gangs in a particular neighborhood in Managua called Barrio El Recreo. And Barrio El Recreo was like many communities or is like many communities in Managua that it it was started in around the 40s and 50s as kind of a squatter community of folks coming in from the countryside, putting up tin houses, very, you know, not much bigger than the room that I'm in here, and then struggling to survive in Managua. And around that was established some people's way of surviving was to sell drugs. You know, others did all kinds of different things. And so a lot of kids living on the streets would come to this neighborhood and um, buy glue, uh, you know, the, the shoe glue that's produced now, I forget the company here in the U.S. that produces it and sells it knowing that kids throughout Latin America are addicted to this stuff. But they would buy that and then crack cocaine started to be more of a reality, uh, while I was living there. And most of that, as I understood it, most of the crack was from cocaine that uh, drug running boats would just throw overboard before they would be, you know, encountered by police and it would come to the shores, make its way to Managua and then, you know, become crack a very, you know, and so I was working with youth as young as 10 up to you know, maybe in their early twenties. So it was, that was part of this spiritual transformation. And, and, you know, at that point, being a, a young white man, I thought I was going to help somebody, and I realized very quickly that it was about, you know, these these folks really saving my my life and, and changing my perspective on the world, the hospitality that they offered to me, not just the youth, but everybody in Managua. I mean, as you know, our country has a very conflicted history with a lot of Latin America, but certainly Nicaragua, but I could go anywhere in that country um, and be welcomed into people's homes. They knew the history. They knew the, the, the reality. They lived, many of them lived through war and violence that was perpetrated by either the U.S. or folks backed by the U.S., but they were, could not be more generous and welcoming and, and, uh, Many people would give give their their bed to me to sleep, and I didn't realize that. But that then I realized, well, where else are they sleeping? Um, so, you know, I left uh, this consulting world and went down to Nicaragua um, to learn a different way. And it was in this work with youth that were in and out of the the criminal legal system. They were the expendable youth. I was trying to, you know, while I was there, it was like, there's, how do we help these young people exit this cycle of violence and their families? You know, I was visiting lots of families who domestic violence and it was like a constant cycle of violence for them. And so I was trying to explore, like, what could be a different way? How do we exit this cycle of violence? And it was in that. Um, pursuit that I was introduced to the Center for Justice and Peace Building in, in Virginia, Harrisonburg. 
uh, at Eastern Mennonite University um, through some folks that were working down there um, in Nicaragua. They told they so I had to go all the way to Nicaragua to learn about restorative justice and um, and I still didn't know a lot about it. But then I you know by going to uh, apply to go to grad school to study more about conflict transformation. As soon as I started plugging into the restorative justice work, this was around 2003. I've never, never looked back. It's been, it's been the sweet spot for me um, in so many different avenues and ways. Yeah. Do you remember the moment where you learned the words or the context in which you learned the words? You know, I don't know what comes to mind all the time. For me, I don't know the moment I learned the words, but what the images that come to mind were me going to pick up youth that I worked with at the jail. You know, they would, they'd get picked up off the street, they'd get, they'd be brought to jail, and then a few days later released. And it was this con, you know, we talk about the revolving door, mm-hmm. um, and it was literally a revolving door, and especially a white, man comes to 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 talk to somebody in jail it was almost like an open door policy they almost released them immediately and so it 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 was in that context that it was like this is absurd this is asinine that we are doing this we're investing in these structures and systems and and at not long after that uh somebody that was a Mennonite central committee volunteer introduced me to uh, restorative justice, but I don't remember exactly how she phrased it. I just remember a light bulb going off for me of like, Oh, that, a lot more. It makes a lot more sense. Yeah. What was it? About? So sometimes people talk about an experience in circle or an experience with um, some other um, like felt experience. I'm curious, what was the thing that clicked for you? Yeah. I just the idea that, these these kids lived a life of harm, right? They were harmed themselves from a very young age. They that was their day to day experience. Um, in order to survive, they would ride the buses and rob folks. And so sometimes I saw them sometimes get shot at by people. Um, so it was a life of harm, either perpetrating or being the victim of. And so just this idea of a different kind of way of dealing with harm, a way that brings people together and works together collaboratively to, to try to try to make it better. Um, we, we actually, you know, I don't think just learning about that kind of shifted how we did our work in the neighborhoods because there were, there were gangs, throughout the, the, the neighborhood. There's about probably 50,000 people lived in this community, Barrio Evercrail. And I think there were about five different gangs. And, and our kind of team that worked with youth, we were some of the only people that could kind of navigate all those different terrains and areas. And um, just learning about restorative justice was like, well, how do we help each of these groups start to see this cycle of violence and start to see how, you know, they have agency. Like, we don't have to just do it this way. 
And, and we ended up, you know, starting to mediate between some of those gangs and it was mixed results, um, while I was there and that work continued after I was there, but you know, it just brought us into a more active kind of role of attempting to intervene to, to work with, uh, the youth to, to try to seek a different way of living. Um, cause that, that was one thing I did learn from, I've, and I've worked with gangs quite a bit since then. I've never met any youth in a gang that wants to be in the gang. You know, there, we, we know that there are lots of needs that they're meeting by that, but every single one I met was looking for a way out. And so, you know, restorative justice in the, in the practices, even though I wasn't like trained or anything at that point, um, but the exploration of them with youth was, uh, was, I, I feel like a really helpful frame. Yeah. I, I, I love the work that CJP does. Um, and know a lot of folks who, who are there and who have gone through those programs definitely want to highlight for folks. And, you know, folks listening to this probably already know this, like the learning about restorative justice does not necessarily, or does not necessitate a graduate degree. Right. That's right. Um, it, it's community. It's people. It's those relationships in the communities that you're in. It's doing things with people, not a white savior paternalistically coming in and saying, this is what you need. Here are these resources. Right. Uh, but how do we um, share power or how do we give you power agency in this situation so you can meet the needs of yourself? Right. The people who are in your community, the people who have been impacted by the harm that you've been a part of. Um and all that to say, like, graduate education can help. Um, I'm curious, as you transitioned from um, Nicaragua back to uh, the States and grad school, what was that experience like for you? Uh, it was, it was, uh, so I came back, I lived in Nicaragua for three years. Um, I was contemplating never coming back just because it was such uh, an amazing place. But I also recognized that, um I might need to learn how to impact things in the United States, given that that's where a lot of conflict is generated. Um, and so I did, I came back in 2002. So here we are, uh, as the U.S. just has left Afghanistan, quote unquote, after almost 20 years back, I, you know, was protesting the initial intervention at the embassy in Managua with all kinds of other people on a weekly basis way back in 2001 and whatnot. So I came back to the U.S. in 2002, and it was quite an environment to come back to. It was, you know, just the culture shock that, you know, folks coming to the U.S. either for the first time or not having been here in a while experience and just really surprised about the dialogue and debate that was happening at that time. Um, so seeking out the Center for Justice and Peacebuilding, CJP, it was called the Conflict Transformation Program at that time, what was very much kind of a balm for me, like a, a, a way to take care of myself it, coming back to the U.S. And I am so grateful for, for them as well. And, and also agree with you that a graduate degree, like I had the opportunity to learn from Elders, um, you know, Chief Lawrence Hart comes to mind, who's a Cheyenne 
chief and elder who, you know, lives restorative justice and has long before these words were invented. And I just remember him feeling affirmed. I, I was had the opportunity to present at a um, indigenous sovereignty symposium, and I presented on the Cheyenne way as a restorative way of, of solving problems and, and doing and, and kind of their, their law system was rooted in, it was an example of this, what we now call restorative justice. And, and I just remember him coming and asking me, so do you think we do restorative justice? And it was, it was a hard, question because here i am a white man with this frame coming that's been come out of the u.s and he's lived this way for so long but he's coming to me to ask this it was a little overwhelming and and humbling and harley eagle lakota who also has done so much work with this i've had the opportunity to learn from him and and then of course kay pranis and so many others so I guess your your question about what was was that like it was <laughs> incredibly uh refreshing and nourishing and and um just a gift you know it was really a gift and an opportunity that I am so glad I did not pass up cuz you know it it, it was another thing that kind of changed my life and trajectory to do that yeah, absolutely. And so from there, right, um, we just had someone, um, Darshiel Carr, um, come through, um, and she graduated from, quote unquote, graduated from the program, uh, you know, within the last couple of years um, and talked about how, you know, the program as it exists now is um, experience driven. What did you focus on while you were in the program? Uh, yes, my, my focus was restorative. You, back then, you could have a concentration, I think they called it, and mine was restorative justice. So, uh, you know, being with Howard Zare on a regular basis um, was, was a great gift. He was a regular uh, professor back then. Another amazing gift back in those days was that um, Fulbright, Anybody that wanted to come to the U.S. to study conflict or conflict transformation or peace building were all sent to Eastern Mennonite University, the Center for Justice and Peace Building. And so our who I studied with was a cohort of a group of folks from Africa, from all over, from Nigeria, from Kenya, from uh, the Congo. And and then at the same time, folks from the Middle East at the same time people from Southeast Asia at the same time as folks from the Far East. And so it was like just the most incredible experience to learn because a lot of the learning, of course, happened outside of the classroom, you know, and just gathering with folks. And um, so my, my focus was restorative justice, um, but my learning was a lot about culture, a lot, a lot about how conflict is perceived and engaged in different cultures and, um, you know, just, just learning from people who come from pretty extreme situations, uh, who then were going back to their country and just doing amazing 
amazing work, sometimes with their, their lives threatened and whatnot, but uh, going back kind of empowered. And uh, so that was also a big part of my learning. Right. Um, so the framing of the question might be different from what you have experienced, but uh, Darshiel did like a practicum um, in Chicago. It, was that still a part of your learning in uh, in doing this work, not just in the classroom, but like on the ground, not to make this all about CJP, like a commercial for CJP, but yeah. <laughs> yes. I, I uh, Howard, Howard Zare connected me to, uh, one of my superheroes, Barb Taves, and, uh, she would definitely be, she, she's amazing, but mostly I just get good feelings when I, cause she's so fun to be around. But I, I had the opportunity to go and work in Philadelphia at the Pennsylvania Prison Society, uh, with Barb. That's where she was working at the time. And she happened to be in the midst of writing the little book of restorative justice for people in prison. And also she happened to be basically scrapping what she had been writing and reproduce this, what exists now while I was working with her. And, and so we ended up kind of, she ended up and, and me exploring with her really shifting the focus of that work to, to looking at experience of trauma and restorative justice is healing. And, and, and we'll, you see in that book that it's really about uh, a journey of healing and a journey of healing in community. So I, for my practicum, I worked with Barb and I, um, worked in prisons. I worked most extensively at, um, uh, the Muncie Women's Prison in, uh, central Pennsylvania and Muncie like many prisons, was built, beautiful facility, built in the, I think, right around the turn of the 20th century, in the early 1900s, as a reform school for girls. Mm -hmm. It was built as a reform school for girls, and then so girls that misbehaved or did not fit in in their environments. And over time, it transformed then to a minimum security prison, then to a medium security prison and now today it's a maximum security prison for women many and so i was working with lifers there um who invited barb and invited me in because they this idea of restorative justice was a lifesaver for them right if they're going to have to spend their life in this prison how do we make this a space of healing a space of um compassion of making right when wrong is done. So that's what I was had the opportunity to work with uh, women there. Uh, still, I'm in touch with one of them who, you know, it's been, it's been uh, almost 20 years now and uh, we're still writing. And um, she was incarcerated at the age of 17 and she did not even, she was accompanying somebody who uh, I think committed murder. She didn't, was, had no part in it, but she's spending her whole life. Uh, and that person has gotten out uh, through some, you know, they, they, but she's still there. And, and so that's what, that's what my work was, was to 
explore restorative justice with women incarcerated. And then also at that time, there was a play called Bodies in Motion. And that play was an experience of trauma and the impact of kind of violent crime on people. And that play had toured about eight different prisons in Pennsylvania uh, before I was working with Barb. And then so when I went, I went and I conducted focus groups with prisoners about their experience viewing that uh, that play. And there and um, so just got to do a number of things um, in in Pennsylvania and uh, in the prison prisons there learning from absolute masters of this work and and that's no joke i mean these people are incredible i didn't know this about you before but um from what i have i've gleaned from what's available from you on the internet is like this wide experience of doing restorative justice both within the construct of the criminal legal system as you as you just shared but you've taken that to so many different places i'm curious um you know we can go chronologically if that's easier but what uh you've done this work in schools you've done this work in community settings you've done this work with organizations what came next from cjp oh my goodness yeah so (laughs) i very much a, a revolutionary uh i still believe I am I just you know a little more uh I don't know how but at that time I was connected with some lovely amazing people and we had a dream of building something like Highlander Folk School um but up in New England um and there we got invited to explore this vision um on a 57 acres of land in Connecticut um and we were the three of us um i i guess i could Mary Novak and, and Harold Burns and i um were the kind of the founding partners of Voluntown Peace Trust and it was intended to create a space for folks on the margins uh, doing peace and justice work to be able to come. We had a little conference center. We called the A.J. Musty Conference Center. We had a number of um, kind of houses where people could stay. Um, one was the Rachel Corey House, named in honor of Rachel Corey, who was run over by a caterpillar uh, tractor as she was defending a Palestinian home. Um, in 2003. So we had the Rachel Corey house, we had the Ahimsa house. Um, and so we were inviting folks almost, it was either free of charge or for very little money. And we offered facilitation of trainings and workshops, but also just space. So I, we were there and then we also, um, had like a community supported agriculture. So it was again, this integration of a sustainable action with, you know, social change type stuff. And I was there for three years um, with them and just, you know, great opportunity to, there were so many doing that work there already, obviously, uh, all around kind of New London and uh, in Southern Connecticut and Boston, we were connected with folks there. It was, it was a beautiful time and place to be. And then from there, I joined my partner Alice in New York and worked as a director of restorative justice at a 
at a school that was entirely for young people transitioning out of the juvenile legal system, mm-hmm. coming out from being locked up. It was, it was not, I love the idea, the model, you know, in New York, most of the teachers that worked there were teachers that were in the quote rubber room, meaning they didn't have a job at any other school. Um, so they're hanging out in the rubber room and they would employ them at this alternative school. And so it was chaotic. It was lots of opportunities for restorative justice. Um, but really a lot of it should have been around adult harm towards young people, but we didn't get to get there as much. So I did that for a little bit and then we moved to Washington DC and I worked at, um, the Latin American Youth Center for about four years. And so the next place I really at LAYC where I really was able to bring in restorative justice was I, I worked in, uh, group homes um, for young people in the foster care system. And it was, uh, you know, with restorative justice, like as you do the work, it just, the, the thing that's powerful for me is how it becomes a way of life. Right. And so I was just talking with one of the youth on Sunday that I'm still connected with that I worked with back then. And he talked about how his experience in foster care was so different when we worked together, when he lived in the house, because it was all about building community, it, we used the circle to talk, you know, all of our meetings were done in circle. And for me, that was just natural at that point. But for him, it was to, it, it was totally different than anything he had experienced. He was more used to people with the power over, you know, consequences. You do this, you're in trouble. And we had a community and the, and the kids, you know, nobody fought, nobody, we, we had our ways of, um, solving problems. And, and so that was an amazing place to experiment with restorative justice. It was a community of six young people. We had two houses, six boys and six girls in the other house. And, you know, what a better environment to, to try out, um, building community through restorative practices, um, and then became the community peace building director at, at Latin American Youth Center. And we hired our first restorative justice facilitator. Um, you may, uh, he, he should be coming on your show at some point. Tarek Maserani was, uh, he got his start doing restorative justice work. He, that's how he says it anyways, working, uh, with us at the Latin American Youth Center. Um, and then we started going into schools and, and offering restorative support. And that's what led me to be the, um, the restorative justice coordinator at E.L. Haynes High School. Um, and then after that, the assistant principal of restorative practices at E.L. Haynes in, uh, DC. This feels weird, but I guess you are interviewing me. It's, it, but it's calling to mind again, just what a, beautiful opportunity and and for me it's opening opening myself up to the movement of the spirit as you know however you see that and really allowing that to put these pieces together you know and working at eel haynes was an amazing place that it was a, a newer high school 
and they were just trying to explore how to solve problems without suspending kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they were looking at it from a very responsive kind of way. And I entered in there with that same kind of mindset of using restorative justice to respond to harm, to keep kids in the building, but, but solve problems. And the four years I was there, we did, you know, build circle, community building circles and whatnot, but very limited. And so I think our results were limited as well. Like we, we were not able to shift our frame to say this is about culture and community and connection and really proactively building that. And, um, you know, I take responsibility for that because I think that was, that was my role. Um, but when we see restorative justice, just as a way of responding to harm we're missing we're missing the richness of the practice as as i think it's been taught for generations and and practiced for centuries um because it, it it transforms culture when we use it as a tool for dialogue a tool for you know building community and 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 i did learn at at E.L. Haynes that a school environment is an incredible space to forward because you have kind of a contained community that has margins and periphery and families and, and a surrounding community and whatnot. But once you teach the tools and pra- and then you practice, you have something that's strong enough to, to deal with any challenge. Right. And, um, I started to taste that and experience that there at E.L. Haynes. I was at Latin American Youth Center for about four years. Then I was at E.L. Haynes for about four years building restorative culture um, and restorative practices. And um, and then we went on a, a, a year journey, my family and I. We moved in. We sold our house. We quit our jobs. We moved into a van. And we traveled uh, around the country for a year, and we call our our boys road scholars because they they were road schooled for that for that year. And then we ended up in Athens. We didn't know where we were going to end up, but we ended up here um, for a number of reasons. One, my my brother is here and his family. My parents aren't far, but also we felt a a, a real kind of call to come down south. Right where the historical oppression is thick, you still feel it in towns like Athens. The segregation, the the inequity, um, which exists in cities around the country, but it particularly felt palpable here in Athens. And so, we wanted to be close to family, and we wanted to be to really dig in and contribute to uh, community healing in a way that we, that being closer to where I'm from felt like we uh, could, could do. Um, So this is where we've been. And and when we got here, um, the school district here was beginning to explore and learn about restorative justice. So it kind of, again, was 
right place at the right time. And I started working. John Lash uh, was the executive director at Georgia Conflict Center at the time. And he and I had met doing restorative justice things years earlier. And he and I just started accompanying the school district on an exploration of what kind of restorative practices would look like. Whether, you know, does it make sense to try to do this district-wide or should we start with some schools? And and the decision was made to kind of um, – and this was at Tark Maserani's guidance who had been doing a lot of work in D.C. for a good long time. He said, why don't you take an approach where you offer it out and see who is interested in exploring kind of whole school restorative practices? And so from – we did that, and we've been working with um, three schools in particular and plenty of others, but three schools have been diving deep, really wanting to address inequity uh, in the schools and, and exploring kind of racial inequity as well as how do we transform everything we do at our school to be restorative. And so it's it's been a real gift to be walking alongside these an elementary school a middle school and a high school um in athens in clark county for the past three years and you know of course setbacks with the pandemic and um that really kind of we were this last year would have been the third year that so the the kids that started in sixth grade back when we started at at clark middle Last year they were eighth graders and the times we did have them in the, in the building, we realized that restorative practices and circles are, are kind of like riding a bike. You don't lose it because when they got back in the building, they just plugged right back in. When there was conflict, it's time to circle up. This is the students, not the adult. I mean, the adults too, but the students. Let's circle up. And they had a capacity to solve problems without adults that we hadn't seen with a student. So it was real unfortunate that we didn't get the whole year with that group. But at the same time, we realized that, you know, this is part of a journey. Um, and they're now at a high school that also is working on whole school restorative practices. So we have experts all among us in these spaces uh, that our job is to figure out how to tap into their expertise and allow them to lead and guide this work. Um, so that's that's kind of where we are now. Yeah, I am realizing uh, a couple things as I continue to grow as the host of the space and as an interviewer. Sometimes I ask questions that are too expansive, right? And as a circle person, like, I don't want to interrupt you, right? Because you, you kind of just gave me like the last 20 years, which I think is beautiful. And like, there were so many points in there that I wanted to be like, follow up question, follow up question, follow up question. I'm going to circle back to some of those. Um, but what stood out to me as you were sharing the experiences in many of those spaces, uh, specifically in the foster um, foster care space and within schools, is two things. One, the idea of doing things with people and sharing power instead of mandating things, like you were highlighting when we were talking about your experiences in Nicaragua, um, making sure that the experiences that people are having uh, and the ways that they're going about addressing their problems um, they have influence in those things. And, you know, of course, 
proactively having uh, input in building those cultures, uh, those communities as well. The other thing that stood out to me that I don't think that I've thought about as a particularly restorative way of being before, um, and maybe it's kind of just a way that people who are drawn to this work tend to be, but this idea of giving up control in your life, right? Of course, like when we're in a space, when we're facilitating a space, uh, we are not there to dictate what happens. We're there to create the container and let the people in the space um, do what they do. We we give up control in that sense. But what I heard from you and as you travel from place to place is going where opportunities are. Um, and I don't know how much you did that with intention or not. Um, I've I've tried to and I was reflecting on my journey through this work, um, some of it being pretty strategic and working out well for me. And then other times the opportunities uh, or the doors were open and taking advantage of those. I'm curious um, if, you, if you've thought about that being a restorative practice, a restorative way of being, or just something that you've embraced as part of your life. It's a good question. I've just learned over the years, like, a lot of the moves we've made or I've made have been ones where a lot of people around me are like, why would you do that? Like leaving the consulting realm was mm-hmm. the first one of like, you are, you, you're good. You got what you need. You got a good job. Why would you do that? And I realized that when I felt the movement inside that was counter to that, it was like, I got to go with that because especially each time I did that and found, you know, like nourishment and kind of rightness, I guess, in terms of a restored, like I found that it was the right move in terms of um, my spirit, you know? And so that became, I don't, I don't, haven't really necessarily considered that from, because that began before I was introduced to restorative practices, but it's definitely been, before I sit down to a circle, I'm definitely going to take a moment of meditation and prayer. Um, I try to do it in the space that we're going to be in and have that moment to allow, because the energy that happens is so much, you know, in those spaces is so much greater than me and beyond me. I want to tap into that, you know, and, and so that very much is part of my restorative kind of framework and how I see the work. Um, but it comes from, a, you know, just a place of, of trying to be led by, by spirit and in my faith and things like that. Um, I think that's where it originally emerged. And then, you know, over time, you just start seeing how that will bring you to a better place than trying to do it yourself. Right. Um, and I was going to say, and it's not that those things are separate. Like, all of those things are interconnected. The way that you are in one space is the way that you um, are in, you know, so many others. And so it was just a pattern that I was picking up on as you were telling the chronology of where you've been. And you kind of highlighted a lesson from each of those spaces that you uh, took. Um, you know, we haven't had a lot of people here in this space talk about the um, the foster care system, right? We've talked about criminal legal system schools, and we're going to dig into schools a little bit more in a second. But when you think about foster care, it is a system of constant separation, 
right? And restorative justice being about connection, community, and then reconnection. Have you seen beyond your time there, like models of this being like restorative justice being proliferated within foster care spaces? You know, not, not enough. I mean, I, I, when I was there, I, the place I was, the, the home was called the independent living, uh, independent living program, ILP. And I was just so surprised that so much of the foster care system actually creates dependence, right? It doesn't create independence. And so just shifting how we operated, um, how we made decisions in that space, turning it all upside down because it, to me, restorative justice was so helpful in that. And because if we got to, we don't like I was working with 16 to 18 year old, we don't have time for this depend creating dependency. And so, um, but that was, that's how a lot of what's done is structured, of course, because it's about meeting needs and, and taking care of folks, but not, not creating dependence. So I have not encountered a lot of, um, restorative spaces around foster care. It's deeply needed because I think there's, there's a lot of, uh, opportunity there for transformation and, and changing how we, uh, relate to one another within that system. Yeah. And of course, like this work belongs everywhere. Right. But, you know, your direct experience with like the impact of people feeling real senses of belonging. Right. Even though I don't know what the direct circumstances that were like, they weren't I don't imagine that they were there for like an incredibly long amount of time. Right. Where folks were in and out. Yeah. Although they tended to like uh, like it there. And so, you know, they did have some say about and so we would. We had, uh, generally would have youth for like sometimes up to three years. Um, mm. and if they got the chance, they would stay there rather than go to some of the other options that were out there because, you know, the, these young people had been to lots of different spaces and many of them were destructive. And, uh, so. So yeah, the, the, the youth I worked with was for years, cause we would even stay in touch with them as they moved on to another space. They would come back and do workshops with us and things like that. So, yeah. Yeah. And now that I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking about a space that I know in Chicago, which I'm forgetting the name of that does things similar, um, where, you know, the youth are then employed as quote unquote peace ambassadors to do some of this work in communities and schools, um, as well. And so, that that can also be a model for that, but making sure that like like and like you how you're talking about in schools, like it's not just about that repair of harm, right? It's one of the things that we're doing proactively to um, make sure that we're we have something to restore to. We have a foundation of relationships to come back to. Similar to what you were talking about in prisons, sometimes yeah, we are repairing that harm process, uh, but like you know, we're stuck here with these people for a very long time. What is the community that we want to have here? What is, like, you, you talked about, like, having a space of compassion, right? How do we make sure that, um, you know, while we are confined in these spaces um, for very long periods of time, unjustly, and we can criticize prisons all we want, but, like, there are people who exist in those spaces, right? And so 
what are the ways that we can meet the needs of, of the folks involved is is so crucial. I'm curious, you know, you talked about how when you moved into that role of restorative practices, um, assistant principal, right? A lot of the emphasis was on that uh, response to to harm that was happening, right? And you had seen that in other school systems as well. I know you you talked about like doing things differently if you had the chance to, um, spending a lot more time proactively. What would those things have looked like? And I imagine those are some of the things that you're coaching your schools to do now, but uh, what are those things? Yeah, yeah. So starting very much with the adults and creating safe and brave spaces for adults to dialogue about you know they're they're working day in and day out working so hard um to educate young people um let's start together to reflect on how is this going for us you know how do we feel like we're doing what brings you joy what brings you pain so starting to introduce and teach that circle teach the the circle uh, process with adults first and doing it consistently with adults um, so that they can both benefit from having a space of, you know, a democratic space for dialogue, teaching the principles and values through circle, um, but then to reflect on their reality because, you know, when you're just doing responsive, it doesn't, it's not going to really transform an environment as much as when you really build it into the fabric of the way we operate. So let's start with the adults. Let's create a space for dialogue. Let's um, give adults agency in this, in this process that of education that we are doing. Um, and so starting there and then once the adults and also having a, a, a leadership team within the school that goes deeper into training, into learning about restorative justice, uh, and, um, and having really creating that team because they become your champions as well. But also what I love about that model of train, of training eight to 12 folks within the school really deeply in restorative justice, then you have a ready group of circle keepers, right? They're your circle keepers. And and if we're going to do circles regularly, we need 8 to 12 circle keepers that can just take a flow and they can go with it. They can make it their own. So that's the other beautiful thing of having this group of, of leadership, of champions. And, and that, that group should be as representative um, of your, you know, it should look like your student population as much as possible. Uh, you should have special education representation, ESOL. And then little by little, let's invite students into that group. Let's prepare students to be leaders. Um, so there's, there's that. And then how do we, once we're doing it as adults, then we can start to do it regularly with students, both in an advisement type space to start with, but also in academic spaces. How do we see circles as a way of, of reclaiming academic time, of building democratic decision making in your classroom? Um, all of those kind of, you know, setting norms together, agreements, um, Let's let's start there before we even explore 
as a as a way of repairing harm. And and that's you know for people that are just learning about restorative practices, that's what I say is like that's how the culture change happens because then when there are problems, it could be an incident of racism inside or outside the community, or it could be we have the circle that we go back to. And then when there is a situation of harm, we have the circle to go back to, you know, we have these, and it, and it really demystifies, it destigmatizes, it takes the punitive nature out of hard conversations um, because we know the principles. We know it's about a non-hierarchical space where it's a voluntary space, those kind of things. So that's, that's where, that's what I would have done differently. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. And also like, making sure that we are really focused on a positive culture in our building, really, you know, our language, our way of empowering students to take on leadership, um, because that's a foundation. Things like positive behavior interventions and supports, like how are we building positive environment and community and, you know, b- having super you know the 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 quadrant that we know that where power with is in the top right corner Mm -hmm. this this idea of the y-axis being about structure and having high expectations yeah we've got to we've got to believe first of all that the students that we work with can achieve at really high levels we have to believe that we have to um practice that and then we have to put the structures in place to make sure people can achieve at that level so there's there's periphery around restorative justice that i think needs to be part of it as well um because it's not a it's not an it it can't do it all itself it's part of this journey of building community and connection in schools yeah not not a panacea not a cure-all definitely not something overnight Um, that's right for folks who listen to this podcast right what you talked about gets to this idea of the quote that i say the most often by james baldwin right uh children have never been very good at listening to their elders but they've never failed to imitate them right yes Um, and so that that piece about starting with adults is so crucial uh when i think about that um I'm curious what your response to the pushback of like, but that's going to take so much time. <laughs> we don't have time for that. What do you, what is your, what is the way that you navigate uh, that resistance? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, definitely we get that. I, you know, I, I guess that's where we inviting folks in one, like, how do we make sure that we're offering the technical assistance, you know, cause circle is hard. It's different than what we're used to, especially as teachers, this sharing power in my classroom is hard. Um, I don't get it. Um, uh, saying sorry as an adult to a youth is hard. All these things, like you said, like they're going to mimic. So how do we be accountable for ourselves and our own behavior? How do we be respectful? So, making sure that we have good ways of supporting uh, teachers and that we um, they have the technical assistance that they need. We're, we're collecting data on if we're saying we're doing circles in all of our spaces, let's make sure we are and let's capture that data and let's, let's show folks how um, – that's the other 
So we just did a process evaluation in, in our schools in Athens. It's on our website. Folks are uh, welcome to check that out um, at gaconflict.org. But one of the things that came out of that is we have to stop measuring our work in restorative justice based on the metrics of a punitive system, right? Like we want to know, have referrals decreased, have ISS and OSS decreased. And they, they, they damn well better if we're doing restorative justice, right? Of course they should. But is that really, how are we capturing how this culture is transforming? Um, how are we measuring growth? You know, students that have grown up, they know their toolbox is full of ways of fighting, but now they've got a toolbox that has other tools of dialogue and problem solve. So how are we measuring that? Like if we're just going to keep measuring things based on the, the, the thing that we know is dysfunctional and has caused harm for, for generations, then we're probably not going to see the, the results. So helping people imagine other ways of seeing change um, and and measuring impact on the culture and the climate of your of your classroom and your community but really it's it's um for me that that question of it takes too long i where i have gone more is to invest my time and energy in those that are wanting to try this out because that then those that aren't are going to see the transformation going on over here at that end of the hall. These three teachers are doing it. They've, they've committed to it as a team. Things are transforming down there. So I might want to plug in. Yeah. And, and, and so I, I get tired of trying to convince people and more it's teaching and going where the energy is and supporting that. Um, Cause that's where the transformation happens. Uh, I, I love that answer. Uh, there's something about, yeah, we're doing this because the school to prison pipeline and mass incarceration as a whole has devastated communities. But as much as abolition, right? And I think this is Ruth Wilson Gilmore. I might be wrong. Ruth Wilson Gilmore talking about how abolition is as much about building life-giving institutions um, as yes. much as it is about dismantling the ones that are causing harm. If that's Miriam Kaba, I'm sorry. <laughs> um <laughs> But right, like what are the things that we're doing, not just to dismantle, but to replace, create? I was, again, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I was listening to something earlier about, uh, you know, diet and our eating habits. Um, and it's so much easier to say, like, you know, add healthy foods to your diet rather than like, can't eat this, can't eat that, can't eat that, can't eat that, can't eat that, yeah. can't eat that, right? Though, yes. like you were talking about like the positive things, like what are we adding to your toolbox to your classroom practices to to all of these things to set a vision for you know healed community like a vision around like no more suspension like the, the easiest way to like decrease suspension rates is okay stop suspending kids and then we're right. in that box of like permissive and neglect but like if that was really the problem that we were trying to address like that's the solution what we're trying to address is building communities uh you know rooted in equity and trust people feeling a sense of belonging, getting their needs met. Um, and when there's conflict, we navigate that without being punitive. Yes. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so we, we kind of frame that work as building the new in the shell of the old, right? Mm. Like we can't just 
we can't just blow it up, even if we wanted to. Or maybe you could, but we're working on building the new and the shell of the old. And, and that is, it has to be rooted in, in liberation. I'll, I'll, uh, my good friend, uh, Chuck Curtis, who, um, is at a school in DC. He, he does, trainings with us and comes to Athens from time to time. I really appreciate he's very clear that this is not just anti-racist. It's not just, it, it, it is about liberation and it's about sovereignty, right? It's about empowering people to become who they are inside, underneath, you know? And so I think that that framework is important because then you get into abolitionist teaching, you get into culturally respond, you know, all that stuff is part of it. Um, but we have to, if we have that frame and we're going in there on a day to day basis, our, our relationship changes with the, the young people we're working with, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is that something that you come into schools say, like, do you come into school saying the words liberation? Probably not at first. Okay. <laughs> I, and I also invite people like, cause I, I'm very like technical and, you know, I want to teach these things well and, and the practices and, but the, the, the philosophy and the framework is important. Um, and so that's why I, we, we do use that like, like the schools that we're working with, we're in year four, definitely. We're, and they, uh, they're moving that work forward. They're having study groups around, um, oh, I forget Bettina Love's book. We want to do more than just survive. Yes. Yeah. yeah. They're, they're, they're studying that together. You know, they're doing this work themselves because they know now it's about liberation. And, um, yeah, we've got to, we've got to, to change dramatically. And, and that school, for instance, is everything they do now, they're passing through a restorative, uh, kind of filter and, and they've thrown out demerits, for instance. We don't do demerits. We only do merits. They've thrown out detention. They've thrown a lot of their systems and structures are now entirely different. They don't have an ISS space. They have a peace room mm-hmm. and they have this other room called behavior and social emotional support, but neither of them are a punitive space that sometimes, uh, so, you know, they're, they're they're at the point now, and that's why when we started this journey, we said, if you're going to be committed to restorative practices and, and doing it whole school, think about a five-year trajectory just to get started, right? And they're they're at year four, and they're like, they want everything to go through a restorative filter. Um, yeah, so it's exciting at this point. Yeah, both as someone who's been on the uh, admin like restorative uh, assistant principal side and as someone who has now been doing this work uh, bringing this into different school communities along with you know the people who work with you in your organization what would you encourage people um, who are thinking about like oh my school needs this like what are some steps to take or like things that they need to be prepared for to really engage yeah um I would, I would suggest starting small, you know, like I, I promote and I teach whole school, uh, restorative practices implementation because I think that really, uh, is what will transform culture. But 
we also teach you start with where you are, right? We were working with six youth in the foster care system. And so can you start in your classroom? Can you start and can you bring, can you form a bit of a study circle with some others to explore what this could look like in your space? Um, start small and then build from there. I think I don't want people to think that if your principal's not on board, then you can't do it. Um, if your school district is going to, then you can't do it because people will take notice. If, if, you know, you're invested in this and you're building in circles into your, your day to day lessons, um, and into the life of your classroom, things will start to change and people will take notice. So that, you know, start with what you have, start small and then build community of others that want to explore and go from there. See what happens because it could be exciting what happens. Absolutely. Um, I think that is a good place to um, transition into some of the questions that we ask everyone. I'm going to drop one more in. Like there's questions that every white person who's been on this podcast has had to answer as you know, we are where we are in time. um, And you are a person who is, white, uh, who is doing this work. Um, what do you see as your role in this work? Thank you for, for asking that. Um, I think part of my role is to never forget my whiteness. Um, as I go into spaces to teach, to know that just my presence can be triggering for people um to to recognize that a lot of people have experienced a lot of harm from people that look like me um and you know of course recognizing that the 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 privileges that have allowed me to to explore restorative practices um and so to go into spaces, particularly with youth, you know, that, that idea, I, cause I know my, my presence has triggered, regularly triggers young people and, and they, they engage with me with caution. So how do I make sure that I am approaching this work with, with humility, with a beginner's mind, with, a desire, a curiosity in the other, um, a curiosity of what guides them, what, and also not shying away from, uh, recognizing the impact of racism, um, the impact of inequitable schools, not mincing words around those things, not, uh, you know, so, so just, you know, why I think restorative justice is not, does not just exist to, to dismantle the school to prison pipeline. I think that's a, an important, important objective, uh, of this work. And, um, yeah, so I just, you know, being somebody who just recognizing where I come, where I'm located in this pyramid of oppression and, and, being committed in every interaction to, to work to dismantle that and to own because, you know, 
I do have a colonized mind. Um, and so to own when I make mistakes, um, and when people call me out that that's to well, not just own it, but to welcome it, invite it, please, please give me that feedback, um, and, and help me to be part of the struggle, um, is, is what I, I think is important in the skin that I'm in. Yeah. I think like the layer I, and I'm not, I, I, I'm asking that question out of curiosity and no judgment because I don't have a response for like what exactly like Daniel should be doing in your space. Thank you for that answer. I'm curious, like when you're thinking about Georgia specifically, like this, the state where, um, there are demographic, just like everywhere else in the country, demographics are changing both like with racial uh, demographics. Um, with that comes political uh, power shifts. Um, you're sitting in this also in a state where, you know, the most infamous um, anti-Asian uh, hate crime happened earlier this year. And so like you're in this space as not just a white person, as a white man who is the leader of a organization, quote unquote leader of an organization. How have you thought about your role um, in your larger community of Georgia? Yeah, thank you. I got to be a, of service. Um, and, you know, our folks of color that are leading the movements here, making sure that they know anything they need. Uh, we're here for them. We, we, my, my partner and I were, were marshals at most, uh, actions and events. And, um, we want to make sure that we are, we kind of, so when we, we had the opportunity to go to Standing Rock, um, during the, the protests and the, and the actions there and, we made sure that we were in the back peeling potatoes and we, we kind of see that as our role, not being up front, but we're back. We see our work as peeling the potatoes and really actively seeking the, the leadership of people of color in this work. And so for me, I've only actually been executive director since the beginning of this month. I was restorative practices director for three years and I'm a reluctant executive director particularly because I'm a white man doing this work. And so my number one intention is to build skills of people of color so that I'm not in this role for very long. Um, and so that's in Georgia. Um, it's taking leadership and direction very intentionally from people of color um, and also making sure that we're building skills of people of color so that, uh, you know, pretty soon I'm sharing this role and then I'm out of this role, um, is, is my objective, uh, in, in who I am and where I am in this role in Georgia conflict center. Yeah. Thank you. I think, you know, there's not just for those of us who, well, those of us who are the similar, similar to you and I, right. Uh, there's some academic, uh, financial and male privilege that we're navigating. Um, and then, you know, you've got whiteness, like, and I still have internalized whiteness that I'm I'm still wrestling with, but, uh, it doesn't show on the outside, right? How are we continuing to, to share power, give up power, right? Um, not make this work about us 
um, and the way that we see things is so crucial. So thank you for those. Yeah, shares. thank you. Mm-hmm. Now to the questions that everybody answers. Um, everybody, everybody answers. Um, we've talked around it a lot, but for you to find restorative justice. Uh, restorative justice, I would define as first and foremost, a way of being a, a movement. I, I was so, yeah, it's restorative justice is a movement around a way of being that's rooted in principles of inclusion, radical inclusion, I think, even when it's like, there's no way we can do this radical inclusion, democratic process, non-hierarchical process, um, and ways of being that build community and build up people that promote healing and promote, uh, making right, I think is, is what the way I see restorative justice. Yeah, for sure. Um, as you've navigated this world and you might have, you've shared like a handful of like broad things, but has there been like an, Oh shit moment. Um, and what have you learned from it? Like something like specific. Cause we talked about like, you know, uh, responsive approaches rather than, um, proactive, or we talked about like, you know, saviorism, but like, is there a specific incident that comes to mind? Well, I think on a, on a, the thing that's come to mind is a real practical, just, just, um, not, not moving too quickly through the process. Like preparation, as we learn when we're training is so important. And sometimes, you know, as I've, you know, been doing this work for, for the time I have, Sometimes I'm like, oh, I got this. I don't necessarily need to check in with everybody before I bring them together. And the times that I have those oh shit moments is when I didn't do the work to really sit with people, hear from them what's going on, explain the process to them. And, and I'm too caught up in my own ego in the work to, to, and so that's when things have gone awry. Um, and it, it's, it's been, you know, just a few times because the process generally is strong enough even in those moments. But there's been some times where it's really gone south, and that's because I didn't do the the work that you need to do in preparation to bring folks together. Yeah, and I don't know if I've shared uh, – that's resonating so hard. I don't know if I've shared this story on the podcast. If I did, it was a very long time ago. But the first school that I was doing this work in, on the first day, the principal was like, okay, there are these students who are having conflict, and, like, you know, we got to get them into the circle, this friend group, blah, 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 all these things, right? It was a he said, she said yeah. type of thing, right? Um, and, and this friend group, you know, one of the people weren't there. Um, but they really wanted to make sure that this conversation happened today. Um, and because that one person wasn't there that had key information, um, you know, going through that process in the moment, like led to more harm. Um, and this work, uh, I think, I think I'm going to attribute this, um, to Ana Mercado, someone who, uh, used to be a supervisor of mine shared with me, you know, this work is so urgent. We need to slow down. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. Too urgent to rush. And, you know, that, you know, David, that comes from you wanting to move this work forward. You want to show people how this can work. And so they want to get them in the room right now. Okay, let's, let's do it. And it's like, no, we need to, we need to slow it down. We got to slow this down. And I, I do want to 
potentially get them in the room, but we got to follow the process. Yeah. And in that way, you're teaching others too, you know, um, about that level of intentionality of the work. Um, but yeah, yeah, you and I, I've been, I've been there as well. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Um, this one, you, you've listened to the podcast, so you might be prepared for, you get to sit in circle with four people, living or dead. Who are they? And what's the question you ask the circle? Wow. Gosh, I, I have heard you ask this. I'm not prepared for it. Um, but what comes to mind for me is a conversation I had with, uh, La Hermana Ana Maria Murcia, um, back in probably the 2000 about, we were actually talking about, uh, studying scripture, um, and she was talking about the analogy of mining for gold, really being patient and persistent and kind of seeking out those veins of gold and following them. And and I think similarly, the roots of justice run deep. They run deep in in our various traditions. Um, and I'm curious, I guess the question that comes to me first is, what from your roots of justice, from your life, your tradition, from your way of being, your mindset, do you think will help us in this day heal and build a better, more just and sustainable world? I mean, I think that for me is really the question. And so I would want to invite Ana Maria to join that. She is... um you know, I think somebody that's influenced my life just about more than almost anybody in her uh, strength and courage. She was a woman of less than five feet or is yet with great courage, great strength and great humility and tenderness of heart. So I would uh, I'd like to invite Anna Maria. I'd like to invite Chief Lawrence Hart, who I've mentioned earlier um, just somebody that had really changed my life in very short time um, and has deep roots in, in restorative justice. You know, he was raised by his grandparents very much in the Cheyenne traditional way and uh, has done so much study of traditional Cheyenne justice. And so I'd love to invite Chief Lawrence Hart to the circle. Um, somebody else that comes to mind in terms of, I guess I'm going down this road of who has influenced my life. Also, uh, somebody that I'd like to invite is Jerry Marie Leesgang. Jerry Marie was a, is a, um, incredible person, friend, trans activist, um, and somebody whose life really and, and way of being taught me so much about interse- intersectional justice and showing up for others, uh, other movements, other struggles. And um, I just would feel so enriched by having Jerry Marie uh, be part of this circle. And I guess the last person I'm, that has come to mind for me is a friend here in Athens who I've gotten to know. Uh, she's younger. Her name is Stephanie Flores. And I would invite Stephanie because I've seen how Stephanie has embraced and embodied restorative mindset, restorative ways of being, 
and is really incorporating it into into her life and work and I think would have so much to offer in terms of where are we going? What do we need to heal? What do we need to build a better and more just and sustainable world? So I would be uh, really moved and honored to to sit in circle with, with those four folks. Um, I'm curious, you know, we've talked about, you've, you've done this work in a lot of different spaces and we already determined, right? The work, this work belongs everywhere, but is there like a moment, a place, a situation, whether it's historical, fictional, or in your life, something you've witnessed recently that you wish people really knew this work? In, in and around the, the criminal legal system, it's clearly a structure, you know, the, the movement around, uh, defunding police and, prison abolition those are all so important and for me it's about economic conversion like how do we transition resources to to help people solve problems on their own so in and around the criminal legal system we're spending so much even if we just look at it from an economic standpoint we're spending so much money and resource and we're just creating more and more harm and and dysfunction and um division so that's that's where i would like you know and we're we're moving in that direction in georgia conflict center but that's that's my passion and dream is how do we make that happen is there like a specific instance that comes to mind um i mean yeah there, yeah there's 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 one man he's an african-american man young man who is sitting in jail right now he stole the bike out of the garage of somebody i know that person wants to sit down and repair this with them they're neighbors Mm -hmm. and we can't make it happen you know like in my i've been doing this work for 20 years i can't make it happen and that's that is so sad you know, we could we could solve this in a way that would be so that that's a very concrete. Everybody wants to do it. The, the person that's sitting in jail, the, the folks that had their bike stolen, um, everybody wants to do this and we can't make it happen. Yeah. Yeah. And thank you for sharing that. And I think like everybody knows that, you know, the criminal legal system needs to change. The criminal legal system is where we need this work. But, like, it's because of, like, stupid reasons where, like, they called the police to because, like, something was stolen, someone was arrested, and now that has, like, started a, ir, in some ways, like, irreversible process of, you know, more harm where nobody's needs are getting met, right? Yes. Um, so thank you. Thank you for yeah. the real specifics of that. Um, yeah. What's one thing could be a mantra affirmation or something else that you want to leave everybody here listening with? I, I think you already said it. Um, because we, we do use that one. I got it from John Lash here, but clearly it's around the, the work is, the work is too urgent to rush. Um, take time. Our culture tries to rush this North American Eurocentric culture tries to rush and we've got to slow it down if we really want to uh, see the change that we're, we're seeking. So it's too urgent to rush. Yeah. Beautiful. Um, two more questions. Uh, you kind of already gave me a suggestion, but who's one person I should have on this podcast and, you know, hook it up. I, I would, yeah. so I would recommend, I mean, I, 
Tarek or Char- Chuck Curtis. Chuck Curtis will, will rock your world. Um, he's a, he's a psychologist as well. So having that lens, he and I shared an office for two years and it blew my mind every day. Um, so I'd recommend him. Beautiful. I'm looking forward to yep. that connecting email. And then finally, uh, how and where can people support your work in the ways that you want to be supported? Oh, we'd be so grateful. We are working on establishing a restorative justice diversion program right now. And, uh, you know, nobody wants to, to fund the startup, even though there would be so much, uh, money saving. So, you know, you could go to gaconflict.org. We'd be grateful for any support, any connecting us with funding sources. Um, yeah, we would, we would be really appreciated. Again, um, as we're creating this restorative justice diversion program, we're working to train folks from the communities and we want to pay them to facilitate restorative justice conferences. So that's going to take some money. And, uh, so anyway, if folks can support, we'd be grateful. Beautiful. Well, we'll definitely link all that in the show notes in the description. But thank you, Daniel, so much uh, for being the second white man uh, to grace these (laughs) airwaves. Um, Really appreciative of your time, your stories, your experiences, your wisdom that you've shared. To everyone else who's listening, thank you so much. Um, It's been a pleasure sharing this conversation, and we'll be back with another one next week. Thank you, David, so much. I appreciate it. Thank you, Daniel. Some of the things that stood out to me was the fact that um, Daniel really reflected on his whiteness and how that affected his work, especially in restorative justice. And I think this is really important because the stakeholders and indigenous communities that have been doing this work as part of their culture for such a long time often don't get the recognition that they deserve. It's important to understand how privilege can affect how a message is portrayed and who the message is coming from. And that's why I thought it was really important that Daniel acknowledge these roots in this podcast. How do you work to acknowledge your privilege in your everyday life? Daniel also talked about being responsive versus being proactive. He said, when you're just being responsive, it's not really going to transform an environment as much as when you really build restorative justice into the fabric of the way we operate. He also talked a lot about how we need to start with adults and we need adults to be held accountable as well because everyone can be a student of restorative justice, even adults. Thank you so much for listening to this episode today and don't forget to check out our anniversary episode coming soon and to check out all the links in our show notes below. And with that, I will see you next week. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast on whatever platform you're using right now. It really helps us further amplify this work. You can also support us by following us on our social platforms, signing up for our email list, rocking our new merch, joining our Patreon, or signing up for a workshop. So many options! Links to everything in the show notes and on our website, amplifyrj.com. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you next week.